When I was uh, traveling this last week, I found this U.S. News and World Report headline that captured my attention. It says, has a smiley face on it, how to make yourself happy. Well, everybody wants to know that. I did. And um, <laughs> so I bought it and read it. It was an interesting article. It says, cheer up, new science says you can do lots more to inject real joy into your life. And I read the article, and basically, the article lists several factors that make happy people happy. One is contentment, and second one is certain kinds of change. Uh, another is the ability to focus the flow of one's concentration. And another, they say, is spirituality, because it provides hope for people and a social structure of support. Let me tell you something. Happy people are forgiven people. You find somebody who knows that the burden of the guilt of their sin before God has been washed away and a person who really understands that fact and they're going to be a happy person. That's what David wrote in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose sin, whose transgressions are forgiven the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now listen to that text in the New Living Translation. I love the way they write it. It says, Oh, what joy for those whose rebellion is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Forgiveness brings joy because sin is what hinders our sense of joy, the guilt that we have. When that guilt is removed because our sins are forgiven, there is a, a true sense of joy, not necessarily giddiness or a false, thin veneer of what the world would call happiness, but true joy that is it's electric, it's alive, it's magnetic, it draws people toward it. You've all heard of Paul Harvey. And he uh, comments on the news in a very different way. Well, he uh, found this classified ad in a newspaper in Pretoria, South Africa. It's, it's a, it was a news um, advertisement that was a mistake, and the, the paper had to try to correct the mistake, and here's why. This is how it was first printed. Quote, The Reverend A.J. Jones has a color TV set for sale. Telephone number 5551313 after 7 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him, cheap. <laughs> so the next day, the newspaper had to print this correction. We regret any embarrassment caused to Reverend Jones by the typographical error in yesterday's editions. It should have read, the Reverend A.J. Jones has a color TV set for sale, cheap, Telephone 555-1313 and ask for Mrs. Donnelly who lives with him after 7 p.m. <laughs> the next day, as if he wasn't dug in deep enough, the paper said, the Reverend A.J. Jones informs us that he has received several annoying telephone calls because of an incorrect advertisement in yesterday's paper. It should have read, 
The Reverend A.J. Jones has a color TV set for sale, cheap, telephone after 7 p.m., 555-1313, and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who loves with him. <laughs> Still didn't get it right. Paul Harvey said, one day later, the paper read, please take notice that I, Reverend Jones, have no TV set for sale. I have smashed it. I have not been carrying on with Mrs. Donnelly. She was, until yesterday, my housekeeper. And then one final ad the following day that read, Wanted a housekeeper. Telephone the Reverend A.J. Jones, 555-1313. Usual housekeeping duties, good pay, love in. Hey, it's, and here's the point, it's awfully embarrassing to be thought of as one who did evil when in fact you didn't do anything at all. And as true as that is, the reverse is also true. Many do not realize they are guilty. They are sinners. It is held against them. They do stand before the courtroom of God convicted, guilty as a sinner. But they live in complete denial. That's because today, guilt is rather, shall we say, passé, puritanical, from the Victorian era, irrelevant, out of date. And you see it everywhere. I mean, even... Um, TCBY had an advertisement for their frozen yogurt that said all of the pleasure but none of the guilt. And that's how we want to live life. All of the pleasure, none of the guilt. So we place certain people around us from certain professions who tell us you shouldn't feel that way, you shouldn't feel guilty. There is no such thing as sin. And all we do is make the guilt complex, not better, but worse. We don't really deal with the root. It's all veneer stuff. That's why we need the cross. There's a passage that I want to read to you tonight, a couple of verses, in our text of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we are on our midweek study. But we are in the beginning of chapter 5, and I'm going to take you down toward the end of chapter 5 because it deals at hand with the communion tonight. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's the word that you see used over and over again? Reconcile. Reconcile. God is in the business of getting rid of guilt. Guilt. 
And how does he do that? By this word, reconciliation. He reconciles us to himself. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me give you an illustration that I think sums it up quite nicely. In the 1960s, there was a man by the name of Geronimo Platt who joined the Black Panther group in Los Angeles, California. Supposedly, supposedly, he shot a young lady, Carolyn Olson, at almost point-blank range in the head while she was helplessly kneeling down. He did it, the story said, all for 18 lousy dollars. He was convicted. He was sent to prison. He served 27 years of his sentence. After 27 years, his attorney, who was very sharp, Johnny Cochran, found that there was enough evidence to set him free, that he was an innocent man, he wasn't guilty. The attorney managed to not only get him out of the sentence, but win for him a lawsuit against the Los Angeles Police Department and the FBI. And today he's worth millions, or he was up until recently. I think he passed away in the, the last year or so. Imagine being condemned as a murderer and then suddenly, after 27 years, set free. What happened? He was reconciled. That's what happened. The relationship between Geronimo Pratt and the state changed. The word reconcile, katalasso in Greek, means to change thoroughly, to change totally, to restore a relationship, to bring friendship where there was once hostility. All of those ideas is what the word reconciliation means. And that's the description of what happened to us. We're guilty before God because of our sin. And Satan, as a very crafty attorney, has leveled against us all of the evidence. And he's taken it, in a sense, to court before God, the judge. But our attorney, Jesus Christ, you should know, is the best attorney in all the world. And so it's been declared a mistrial. Because by the act of the cross, any repentant sinner can be reconciled back to God. It's the cross that enables the reconciliation, the relationship to change thoroughly. How? Well, notice the text says, by not imputing their trespasses to them. By not imputing their trespasses to them. Impute is a bookkeeping term means to count, to reckon, to assign. So God does not count your sins against you in your bookkeeping account. He doesn't impute it to you. By not imputing their trespasses to them. Now question, do you sin? Have you sinned? Have you ever transgressed? Well, who hasn't? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And by the way, this is, this is very key. The Bible calls all of those things sin, transgression. doesn't say accidents, blunders, shortcomings, or weaknesses. calls it what it is, sin. 
We must do the same if we ever want to find forgiveness. We have to come clean and admit who we are. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Because you'll never find a savior till you recognize you're a sinner. God is in the business of forgiving sins, not weaknesses, not blunders. We all blunder, we all do that, but we're all sinners. We fall short of the glory of God, and even beyond that, we do things deliberately sometimes, don't we, that are wrong, and thus we all need forgiveness. Now, you, you know this, but you live in a world where if you say that in, in, in a lot of places, it doesn't go over really big. Have you noticed that? Sin isn't really a popular concept with most people. The Bible's right. The cross is, is a stumbling stone. It stumbles people. It's a, it's a rock of offense, the gospel. It's not popular. It is passe, as I mentioned. Um, many religious systems and philosophies sort of take sin out of the picture. Hinduism, for Example says good and evil are relative and everybody stumbles on their journey of knowing themselves and if you fail in this life, you've always got another life and another life and another life. You get reincarnated. So it's all relative. Then there's the Unitarian religion who says man is basically good, not evil, good. Which is an exact contradiction to the Bible which says we're all evil and sinners by nature by birth, and then by choice. But the Unitarian Church says, well, we're all good by nature. And they talk about the redemption of one's character. You just have to realize that. Then there's Christian science that denies evil and sin and death altogether. You know what? You'll get no joy living in denial. You don't get forgiven living in denial. You get forgiven living in honesty and coming in confession, and then God brings joy. I've told you before about that new product came out some time back called disposable guilt bags. No joke. We would think it would be a joke. But 2,500 people bought into it at $2.50 a pop. It was 10 paper bags, very plain bags, with written instructions hold it up to your mouth, taking a deep breath, and blow all of your guilt into the bag, and then dispose of it. It's not that easy. It cost God the blood of his only son to get rid of your guilt. Not a paper bag. But because of that, when we do have it now, we don't have to go out and buy a paper bag. We can just right there stop and confess. So, follow the thinking carefully. Joy comes through forgiveness. Forgiveness comes through reconciliation. Reconciliation comes through imputation, not imputing their iniquities, not counting their iniquities to them. Now, how, what does that mean? How, how does God do that? Does he just sort of turn the other way and, and disregard the fact that you and I are sinners by nature and by choice? Well, he couldn't do that if he's going to be a just God. If he's going to be a loving and a just and holy God, he has to do something with the sin that every human being has ever lived commits. This is how he does it. 
Now watch it carefully. Verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin. I think there's only one person that can refer to. Who would that be? Jesus Christ. Absolutely sinless. Doesn't refer to me. Doesn't refer to any of us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, folks, that is the principle of imputation, if we're going to speak on theological terms. And that's the term the Bible uses. He doesn't impute it to us, but he did to Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Using this principle of imputation, God the Father treated God the Son, Jesus Christ, as if he were a sinner, though he was not. That's what it means. God treated Jesus as if Jesus were guilty of every sin ever committed, so that he could treat you like Jesus Christ. Or, say it again, God treated Jesus like you and I deserve to be treated, so that God the Father can treat you and I like Jesus Christ deserves to be treated. That's what that verse means. Jesus bore our sins so that we could bear his righteousness. Isaiah 53 says the same thing in predictive form. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. That's what we mean by substitute atonement. Jesus was the substitute of vicarious atonement. When I first heard that, I was um, 18 years of age, maybe 17, turning 18, I heard Billy Graham talk about this on a television broadcast that Jesus wants to take all of my sins, take my life, take all of my past, and in exchange, give me righteousness, right standing, joy, peace. And I thought immediately, God, you're getting a crummy deal. Why would you ever want to do that? What's the answer to that? So he could populate heaven, that's why. The only way God can populate heaven and have the fellowship for all of eternity is by forgiving sinners. Because only forgiven sinners go to heaven. So he does it by reconciliation, by imputation. Not imputing our sins to us, but to Jesus Christ. Sin, you might say, is bad for your health. In an eternal way, especially, but, but even in all ways. I mean, it causes you to be stressful, uh, filled with anxiety, very lonely, isolated. But more than anything else, it separates you from all of eternity from God. It keeps you out of heaven unless sin is dealt with at the cross. When Dwight Lyman Moody, the evangelist from Chicago in the late 1800s, was going through the United States with another evangelist holding crusades, they stopped at one town... And they preached consecutive nights. On one of the days while they were there, they received a letter from a man who had been at one of the meetings and felt very convicted over his sin and wrote Dwight Moody this letter. Mr. Moody, I wish 
you and your friend had never come to this city. Before you came, I wasn't troubled about my sins. You talk of peace and joy, but you've turned my soul into a living hell. I can't stay away from the meetings, and yet to come to them only makes me worse. You promise salvation, but all I find is torment. I wish you would leave, then I'd get back my old peace. Listen, if your sins aren't forgiven, then you ought to be troubled about them. Solomon wrote, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So, once again, remember, joy comes from forgiveness. Forgiveness comes from reconciliation. Reconciliation comes through imputation. God doesn't count your sins to you, but counts them to Jesus Christ and takes the pure, perfect, sinless righteousness of Christ and imputes that to your account. That's the exchange. That's the deal. Jesus is not a sinner. He never was, but he was treated like one. And truth be known, you're not a saint. But the Bible calls you one because God treats you like one. He imputes to you and I that nature. Our sins were imputed to his account. His righteousness was imputed to our account. Talk about forgiveness. God was so anxious to forgive you and I that he would take our sins and put them on his spotless son who never did anything wrong. Some years ago, when Paderewski, the Polish piano player, the great master, was scheduled for a concert in Europe, a mother took her son. He was probably eight or nine years old at the time. And he had an interest in music, and she figured, you know, if I could just get him to be subjected to the great master, a genius... Maybe that would rub off on him and he'd be inspired to keep going in his musical talent and training. It was concert night. People were dressed up. They assembled in the hall. Mother and son were in the first row waiting for the great Paderewski. The curtain was up. The piano was exposed. But he was off in the wings waiting for the right time. Well, mom got distracted because somebody behind her recognized her and they started chatting. And while her eye was off the boy, he jumped up, got on stage, went over to the piano and started playing chopsticks. Of course, she was embarrassed. And the crowd, waiting for the great master, seeing a little kid playing chopsticks, they gasped. Just then, Paderewski strolled out on stage. And people, well, they felt awkward. He didn't tell the young child to stop. He didn't frown. He smiled, bent over and whispered, keep playing. And he put his arms around the young child and with a soft but brilliant accompaniment made it sound like magic. Everybody applauded. The kid got a real high, you know. Talk about something that's going to give him incentive. <laughs> what the great Paderewski did for an eight- or nine-year-old boy in a grander scale, God the Father has done for you and I. All of our fumbling notes in life, all of our sins, all of our transgressions, and we can't really fix ourselves. We can't improve on ourselves. We try, but we always fail. But God has that way of just taking His everlasting arms and 
taking our faltering notes and making an anthem of salvation. That's reconciliation. He changes the relationship that we have through the cross by treating Jesus as if Jesus had committed every single sin ever that was committed so that he could treat you and I who come to him in repentance like his son deserves to be treated. Isn't that incredible? That's the most amazing act of love and conception I've ever, ever heard of. Corrie ten Boom used to say something else. She used to say, and this is bearing on communion tonight, that God forgives all of your sins. He takes all of your sins and throws them in the sea of forgetfulness and then he posts a sign that says, no fishing allowed. Now, if you have come to Christ, your sins are past tense. They're washed away. Oh, yes, you still fail. You still sin. So do I. We do it unintentionally. Sometimes we do it intentionally. We stop right there and we say, God, forgive me of that. Help me to change. I turn from that. I want to serve you and obey you. As God reveals more of himself, we do that in process. But sometimes, and you know it's true, we come back to the pond. We come back to the place of forgiveness. And we get out our fishing pole. And we start drudging it up again. God, remember five years ago when I did this and that? Would you stop already? It's over with. It is finished. All is forgiven. Move on. Don't drudge it up. Don't remind yourself of it. Don't remind your wife of it. Don't remind your husband of it. Don't keep reminding your children of it. They're past failures. But then, be humble enough as you recognize you have failed to bring that to the cross and realize that sin was placed upon Jesus as well. And you know what will happen? Joy will happen. As you realize, God doesn't put that to my account. I look at my account, it's, it's clean, man, it's white. That's because Jesus' account has all of our sin. And understand this, lest you go, man, that's, I, I don't like the way you put that. That just sort of makes me really uneasy thinking about Jesus. The Bible says, for the joy that was put before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy? You, man. You. He could get you to heaven. You, you could live with him forever. He could say, you're my child. And he could only do that by forgiving. And that only comes by reconciling. And that only comes by imputing. And that brought him joy to do it. 